I told you, I've told some of you that, that God has been kind of stirring my nest around and, and making me uncomfortable lately. And I'm thinking about friends and neighbors and, and uh, you know, what would it mean? What kind of person would you have to be to drive by uh, somebody's house on fire and not try to do something to make sure that they that there was nobody there in danger. Um, you know, you'd have to be a pretty cold, heartless person not to care. I've been in that scenario a number of years ago, driving down a country road in Ohio, and and a little ways off the road was a. We could see the flames, and it was at night, and we pulled off and stopped and drove back down a long driveway and found where the house was, and there were people inside in two different parts of that house, and none of them knew that the house was on fire. And, uh, and you know, there are people all around us. There are people all around us. I, I don't want to put anybody on a guilt trip. I'm just, you know, I'm just sharing with you kind of the way God is stirring me. I'm, I've been convicted. I am convicted um, of, of my lack uh, of action. And um, you say, Pastor, we can't do everything. Everybody can't do everything. And I, I agree with that. I really do. I, I think, you know, in the past we've been put on guilt trips for not doing enough and and um we've heard the stories of what other people have done in in ministry efforts and outreach efforts and um you know i'm not saying you have to do everything that somebody else does i i know people who are very actively engaged in in uh, sharing the gospel i know of people who are still to to this day street preachers and and people who hand out gospel tracts, and people who are faithful to speak with everybody that they that they cross paths with, they will say something about the gospel. That's fine. That's not been my typical way of interacting with people. I I, I try when God puts it on my heart. I'm just telling you, God is God is stirring me up to uh, to do more to reach lost people. I trust that he will help us. I trust he will help us. There are, there are lost and needy people. It's figuratively speaking, we go by people every day whose houses are on fire and they don't know it. May God help us to, be, to keep ourselves. You know, that's really where this where this begins. It begins with keeping ourselves where we ought to be. I think a lot of times, I know in my, in my own life in the past, I can, uh, I can testify to times when I've been so consumed with just keeping myself right that I didn't really have anything left for anybody else or for any, any kind of outreach effort or ministry. And... Um, you know, I suppose if that's all you can do, then that's better than, than not doing anything. If it takes all of your effort and energy just to keep yourself right, then friends, by all means, keep yourself right. 
Keep yourself walking true. Keep yourself in the faith. Um, but may God help us to get to the point where we have an easy enough victory. You know what I mean? I, I don't know if you know what I mean. Some of us have just, and I, again, I've been there myself. There have been times in my life when it seems I've had to work so hard just to keep my own self in victory. And may God help us to get past that point where we can keep ourselves easily in victory that we've got plenty left to say, let me help you. Your house is on fire and you don't even know it. Let me share the good news with you. Let me tell you about Jesus. Well, that was a addendum to the message. I want to talk to you for a little while this morning about contending for the faith. Contending for the faith from Jude. And Jude is such a small book, a letter that it has no chapters, it only has verses. And uh, if you have a hard time finding Jude, it's only about one page. Uh, the easiest way to find it is go to the very back of your Bibles and find the book of Revelation, and then Jude is the book just right before Revelation. You have First, Second, and Third John, and then you have Jude, and then Revelation. Jude, verses 1 through 3. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you will work in our hearts this morning. Lord, may those of us who are perhaps a little bit downtrodden and discouraged in our faith, may we be lifted up and edified and built up in our faith, strengthened in our faith. Lord, may those who perhaps have not really settled the question whether or not they're going to follow you, Lord, may they see the need to commit themselves wholeheartedly to living for you, living in your kingdom. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you will help us then to take the good news of the gospel everywhere we go, every opportunity we have. Lord, keep us walking in the Spirit that we might hear your voice leading and guiding us. And Lord, we trust you for the help that we need. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It's interesting to note how Jude starts off his letter. He introduces himself by saying that he is a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Some of you may know this, but most likely, Jude and James were both half-brothers of Jesus. James himself, as I understand, did not introduce himself as a brother of Jesus. Uh, it is understood from, from other places in the scriptures and from church history. But my, what must it have been like to be 
a sibling of Jesus Christ. I have heard it said humorously, and I've always found it quite funny myself, imagining, uh, you know, the parent who says to their child, why can't you be more like your brother? And I can imagine at times Joseph or Mary, why can't you be more like Jesus? And uh, I, I don't know, but in my imagination, it's easy for me to, to think along these lines because as we read through what little information there is in the gospel accounts about Jesus and his siblings or, or his brethren, as they are called, you know, his, his brothers, uh, they really did not believe in him. We can look back in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 7. John, chapter 7, we read that uh, Jesus went about in Galilee, but he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Verse 3, his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also there may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. I don't know about you, but I can hear the hidden little jibe. Can you hear the needle in that? Can you hear it? I can hear it. His brothers are saying, if you really are so great, why don't you go to these other places? Show yourself off to the world. Let them see how great you are. I don't know. Maybe it's just me and my imagination. But really, quite honestly, let's, let's think about it from their point of view. I don't know how many. I never had a brother. I, I have one older sister. But I can imagine what it would be like If your older brother told you he was God, how would you, how do you think you would respond to that? Yeah, right. But what's interesting is Acts chapter 1 gives us a list of those who are waiting in the upper room, waiting for the promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And you know who was part of that number? Jesus' siblings, his brethren, his brothers. Somehow or another, something happened that caused a complete turnaround in their point of view. Those who once... You know, there's one place in Scripture where... the, the people come to Jesus and say, they say, you're, you're fam- you have family outside, they're asking for you. And, and I can just, again, this is me kind of speculating and reading between the lines, but I can kind of just imagine them at that time, you know, wanting to come to Jesus and, and you know, as they try to put their arm around him and sort of gently lead him away and turn to the people uh, that are watching, looking on, and saying, you know, bless his heart, he, you know, we're not sure about him. Because I really think that there were times when they thought, and I, I, I'm not trying to be sacrilegious or disrespectful at all, maybe a little bit humorous, but I really think there were times when they must have thought he was crazy. 
But yet on, in Acts chapter 1, when we read about those who were gathered in the upper room, right along with all of the other disciples were Jesus' siblings, his brothers. And I, I have to believe that Jude and, and James was among that number. Something, friends, had happened. Something had happened that had caused them to completely change their point of view and say, he, he really is who he said he is. He really is the Messiah. He really is God in human form. And they believed, and eventually James, we know, became the leader of the Jerusalem church. Jude became active in the church. They all uh, committed their lives to serve the cause that Jesus Christ came for. And I think about that, and I think, hmm, I wonder what could have happened to cause the change in their perspective. Most of you can probably guess. I think I know what it, ha- what it was that happened. I think it was what we celebrated just this past Sunday. I believe it was the resurrection of our Lord, that when, when Mary, the mother of Jesus, along with his other brothers, and, you know, this is another interesting point. Jesus uh, had other siblings. Mary had other sons besides Jesus. Why was it that when Jesus was about to die on the cross, he turned over the care of his mother to John, not to some of the actual other children, other sons of Mary. I think it was because at that point they were out of the picture. But they changed because they saw something happen that convinced them completely that Jesus really was the one who was to be the Savior of the world. He came and he died. They knew he had died, but then the third day he rose again and revealed himself to his followers and to, to numerous people across the space of about, of about 40 days. And they were so convinced that they became not just a part of the, the followers of Christ, but they became leaders in the movement of Christ followers. Now here, Jude, this is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of about 70 A.D., something like that. So, so roughly about 35 years or so past the time that Jesus died on the cross and then rose And ascended back to the Father. What Jude wants to do is to write a nice devotional letter about their common salvation. That's what he wants to do. Do you notice what it says there in verse 3? Beloved, I was eager to write to you about our common salvation. He wants to write a nice nice devotional letter. I like nice comforting, devotional reading. Don't you? Something that's encouraging and will make me feel good and, and uh, lift me. You know, I remember it's, he's not quite as popular as he was for a while, but um, back probably in the early 90s, I suppose it was, that Max Licato uh, started getting really uh, kind of in the mainstream and and uh, his writings were kind of that style, very devotional, really inspiring and uplifting. And I've got some of his books on my, uh, on my shelves, and, and uh, I'm not throwing stones. He's, he's had some good things to say. Um, but, you know, there are times that we just, need to be, we just need to be stirred up a little bit. 
We just, we need to, we need a fire lit under us. And Jude here, while he says he wants to write a a nice devotional letter uh, about uh, our common salvation, you know, something encouraging, something uplifting, he has learned of an attack on the foundational truths that the church is built on. Verse 4, he says, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, instead of writing to you a, a nice devotional letter about our common salvation, I've found it necessary to write to you, encouraging you to contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. And incidentally, that word that uh, we have that's interpreted as contend, to contend for the faith, is is the same word that we get our English word agonize from. It is a word that refers to a life or death struggle. You know, it doesn't mean just uh, whenever, every once in a while, whenever you feel like it and, you know, you do something. But it's, a, it's to earnestly engage in a life or death struggle for the truth of the gospel. To contend earnestly for the faith. Well, why is this so important, to contend for the faith? Why, why does it matter so much? The first thing that I want to point out to you this morning is that contending for the faith involves high stakes. It involves high stakes. Jude here in verse 5 begins talking to us about three people groups, three different people groups. In verse 5, he talks about the Israelites who were delivered from Egypt's bondage. They were delivered out of slavery. God brought them through the Red Sea. He, they, they saw the plagues that came upon Egypt. They were brought through the wilderness. They were fed manna from heaven. They got water out of the rock, meat. Uh, you know, they had shoes and clothes that never wore out. And then God eventually brought them through the Jordan River into the Promised Land. All of this time, they saw God work in mighty, amazing, miraculous ways. There's another group of people in verse 6 that Jude mentions, rebellious angels. Verse 6, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. These are, these are th- uh, that group of angels that Lucifer led out of heaven, a third of the angels when Lucifer rebelled against God in heaven. The angels, those are people who not only believed, but had literal interaction, literal uh, I mean, we would call it face-to-face, personal, physical experience with God. I, I'm, I'm going somewhere, so just hang with me for just a minute. Then he mentions in verse 7, he mentions Sodom and Gomorrah. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Three different 
people groups, those of Sodom and Gomorrah who never had believed in God and lived out horribly wicked, perverted lifestyles. There were the angels who not only believed but had experienced God as a present reality. And then there were the Israelites who had believed in God and seen God work in mighty, miraculous ways in their life. In these three groups, do you know they all have one thing in common? They failed to contend for the faith. They failed to contend for the faith. And as a result, God held them all equally accountable and judged them. People, when we think about contending earnestly for the faith, standing up for the truths of the gospel that we believe in, and friends, incidentally, this has gotten very confused in our culture today, and in the, you know, all the political activism and all of that, and friends, please don't, don't mishear me, don't misunderstand me. Yes, we ought to stand up for what's right and do what's right, we ought to We ought to fulfill our civic responsibilities as Christians. Yes, we should do those things, but there is also very much a sense in which we should live above those things. We live above those things. We are citizens first of heaven. And... When we contend earnestly for the faith, we need to realize that it involves high stakes. The the stakes are high, friends. The stakes are high. I remember hearing my dad tell a story, uh, I believe it was somewhere in the Scottish Isles, about, about men who would make their living by climbing down the cliff faces there, uh, on the shores of the islands where they lived, there were a certain type of, of birds that nested uh, along the cliff face. And, and uh, I, I don't know whether they made their living this way or it was just something they did to, get, to sometimes get food to eat, but, but they would fasten a rope up at the top of the cliff and then come down the rope, down the side, and they would rob these birds' nests. They would take the eggs and then, and then climb back up. And the story is told of one man who had done that. He had come down the rope, but the place where he was trying to get access to the nests and, and get the eggs was in a little bit, and he had to get the rope swinging and swing in and then catch himself on the ledge and then make sure, you know, get his rope tied off, and then he went about his business collecting the eggs. But when he got done and got ready to climb back up the rope to get up to the top of the cliff, he found that somehow or another his rope had come loose and was dangling now out a ways from the cliff face. He couldn't reach it. And he called for help, but there was nobody around. He was alone. There was nobody at the top uh, of the cliff there helping him. He was just there by himself. And after a while, of waiting. He didn't know what he was going to do. He was just there stuck. There was nothing but rocky seashore down below, perhaps hundreds of feet below, and then no way he could climb back up except for that rope that was now dangling out of reach. After a while, a breeze began to blow, and it started that rope to gently swinging in and out, in and out, and he 
kind of caught his breath and thought, oh, maybe if only that rope will swing just enough to where I can grab it. But it never did swing in far enough. And he suddenly realized there was only one way he was going to get off that cliff face. He was going to have to do his best and time his jump just right. And then when that rope came in as close as it was going to get, he was going to have to jump and try to grab that rope. And he would only have one chance, only one opportunity. You want to know the rest of the story, don't you? I do too. I don't know the rest of the story. (laughs) All I'm trying to tell you, friends, is that the stakes are high. The stakes are high. And the cost of failing to contend for the faith is too high a price for us to pay. The stakes are high, friends, because of the possibility possibility of failure. The possibility of failure. Now, I know what you may hear from other pastors and other churches of other persuasions, but friends, you're listening to me this morning. And can I just be frank with you and tell you that there is a very real possibility of failure. There is a very real possibility of once having known the grace of God and the reality of salvation in your heart and then to turn away from that and go your own way and end up lost. There's a very real possibility of failure. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, Let him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, the Apostle Paul there admonishes us to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand. And the implication there is clear that there is a real possibility of failure. And so the stakes are high. The stakes are high because of the impartiality of judgment. The impartiality of judgment. What interests me about these verses that I read to you a moment ago, uh, verses 5, 6, and 7 of Jude, is the fact that he mentions these three different categories of people. Those, who, uh, The Israelites who had known about God's deliverance and experienced all of the miracles, those of the rebellious angels who had been cast out of heaven, and those of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it seems that they are all lumped together in one group. Of people. Stakes are high because of the impartiality of judgment, and stakes are high because of the severity of that judgment. The severity of that judgment. This verse of Scripture deals both with the severity and the impartiality aspect. Romans uh, chapter 11, verse 17. If some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Here Paul is talking about the Jews and the Gentiles and the Jews who were natural branches of the vine and the Gentiles. That's us. We were grafted into the vine. We aren't aren't native to the plant, but we were grafted in. Praise be to God. But he says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. 
Then you may say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. The stakes are high because of the impartiality and the severity of judgment. Friends, there are some things that are more important than others, and we must earnestly contend for the faith. Not only does contending for the faith involve high stakes, but it requires a clear strategy. It requires a clear strategy. Verses 20 through 23 of the book of Jude. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. That's the strategy. Bender family folklore, I've probably told you this story before. Bender family folklore tells that my probably great, great, great grandpa, George Bender, two or three greats, something like that, had been a Civil War soldier. He left behind his wife Mary and the children to go and serve. I don't know whether it was the Union or the Confederacy, so don't ask me that. I don't know that. Um, but anyway, he had to leave behind his family to go and serve, and, and so his wife Mary and the children were left in an area, a part of the country where it was sometimes unclear as to which side they belonged, whether it was uh, Union or Confederates, and there were often times when both uh, troops would traverse the area. There were times when they would see Union troops coming through, traveling through that area. Other times they would see Confederate troops traveling through that area, and so they needed a strategy for safety, and so their strategy was, you can probably guess, they kept someone on the lookout, and they kept two flags. They kept both the Union flag and the flag of the Confederacy. And if they saw Union uh, blue troops coming through, they would fly the flag of the Union. And if they saw Confederate gray coming, they would fly the Confederate flag. And in that way, they managed to keep themselves safe throughout the course of the Civil War. Friends, contending for the faith needs a strategy, and the strategy that Jude gives us here is keep yourselves in the love of God. And I see here about four different uh, participle uh, words or phrases that he uses to, to flesh out this idea of keeping ourselves in the love of God, what it means. He uses this phrase, building yourselves up. Building yourselves up. In other words, following Christ and being a Christian is not simply a transactional experience that takes place in a moment in time and then you're done with it. But it is an ongoing uh, relational process that we continue throughout our lives. In other words, we cooperate with grace. 
We cooperate with grace. We can read the words uh, of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, where he says, For this very reason, make every effort. Make every effort. Say, Pastor, I thought we were saved by grace through faith. Yes, we are saved by grace through faith. But friends, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning but grace is not opposed to effort. And Peter here says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and so on and so forth. That verse of Scripture needs its own message. But we cooperate with grace. And so we build ourselves up. We grow in our faith. The next uh, participle phrase that I see that kind of fleshes out this idea of keeping ourselves in the love of God is praying in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's, it's that ongoing communication, staying in touch with God, staying in touch through the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. The next one is waiting, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. I believe one of the things that he's referring to there is the return of Christ, the return of Christ. Um, you know what it is to know that judgment day is coming. And you want to be ready when that day comes. Uh, numbers of accounts that that reminds me of. I, I told you the story not too long ago about, about planting beans and the, the young boys planting the beans and, and trying to help. And, and instead of doing it properly, they all, one of the boys, he had that idea to put them all in that one big hole. And he said, there, now, when your dad comes home, you can tell him the beans are planted. And, you know, I'm sure that that gave that boy great satisfaction and joy for that day, at least. To know that when dad came home, he could kind of honestly say, the beans are planted. And technically they were. But got to be careful about operating too much by technicalities. I'm sure there were other times when that boy remembered what had been done. And he knew, he had to know that sooner or later, what had been done was going to reveal itself. And I'm sure when he thought along those lines, maybe his heart started to beat a little bit faster and he began to wonder. There are two aspects of waiting for the mercy, the, the appearing, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and there is that one aspect of not being ready and your heart beating a little bit faster because you know that it's coming. And friends, one way or another, whatever your, your belief about the end times, however it's all going to turn out, I, I don't intend to get into all of that. 
But whenever it's going to happen, one day the truth is we will all face God in judgment. Whether it be by way of the rapture or whether we go through the tribulation and then face God, whether we, whether we die a natural death. One day we're all going to face God in judgment. And I want to have that kind of waiting that is anticipating, hopeful, expectation, with joy, looking forward to the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he mentions reaching out to the lost, reaching out to the lost. Verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Friends, we can't love God without loving the same things that God loves. We can't love God without loving the people that God loves. We can't love God without trying to do something for Him, for His kingdom, to share the message. Contending for the faith involves high stakes. It requires a clear strategy, but finally notice it leads to a sure reward. Thank God. It leads to a sure reward reward. Verse 24 through 25, Jude gives us this wonderful doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. It involves a sure Reward. There are a couple of phrases there that he uses that I want to point out to you just quickly. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless. Literally, it means unblemished and without blame. How many feel like you have two left feet and you're all thumbs and you fall all over yourself all the time? Anybody besides me? And I mean that more than just physically, but sometimes just navigating life, I feel like. I, I don't want to give you the impression that I believe in a sinning religion. I don't. And I believe God keeps me in victory over willful sin in my life. But there are just often times that I navigate life feeling like I have two left feet and my hands are all thumbs and I'm just... I'm just a failure waiting to happen. But friends, God's word says he is able to keep us from stumbling and present us blameless before him. I heard one preacher say, if God can make a worm that crawls in one end of a mud puddle and comes out the other side clean, then friends, God can keep you and he can keep me in this old sinful, dirty world that we live in. And God can do it. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. That means directly in front of. Directly in front of. With great joy. That is with exultation and especially welcome. Especially welcome. Oh friends, what will it be to stand directly in front of the throne of God without fear of 
judgment, without fear of penalty, without fear of being cast away or cast aside, and to know that you are fully loved, fully known, fully accepted, and about to be welcomed into his kingdom for eternity. Oh, what will it be? My dad used to tell a story about a Methodist circuit-riding preacher named Daniel Curry. And Daniel Curry, as often would happen with circuit-riding preachers, was caught one night with no place to stay, and so he made his bed kind of a camp-out type situation, riding by horseback, and just made a little camp there, found a place to get as comfortable as possible. And as he slept, he said he had a dream. He dreamed that he had died and was standing at the gates awaiting admittance into heaven. And there at the gates was the recording angel, and the recording angel was looking through his book trying to find a record of Daniel Curry's name, and he said he could not find his name listed there. And he was being turned away. And Daniel Curry said in his dream, he said, I don't care what your book says. I know my name is in God's book. Would you please let me in? And the recording angel said, there's nothing I can do except you can take up the matter with God. And so Daniel Curry said, yes, he would like to talk with God. And in his dream, I understand there's this dreams aren't they, they don't necessarily reflect biblical or theological truth. But Daniel Curry said in his dream, the angel, the recording angel, stepped down and, and put a hand on him. And he said they began to fly and they flew and they were going, moving towards a brilliant light that was brighter than the brilliance of the noonday sun. And after some time, he said he found himself standing and, and uh, realized that he was before the presence of the God of the universe. And in that setting there, he said he was so overcome with the transcendent majesty and the brilliance and the holiness of God that he could say nothing on his own behalf. You know, Bertrand Russell said, someone asked Bertrand Russell, what will you do if you die and then you find out that there really is a God? Bertrand Russell said, I will tell him he did not give me enough evidence for his existence. Others say, well, you know, when I stand before God, I'm going to say this and I'm going to say that. And I, I really have a feeling kind of like what Daniel Curry said in his dream. I believe when we stand before the transcendent majesty and holiness of the God of this universe, we won't have anything to say. We won't be able to say anything. And God, the voice of God spoke from the throne demanding an answer from him. Why are you here, mortal? What dost thou hear? And Daniel Curry said his tongue was thick and his mouth was dry and he could not utter a single sound. But then after a few moments, he said he felt a presence slip up beside him that was as cool and refreshing as a breeze on a hot August day. And he felt a hand go around his shoulder and an arm placed upon his chest. And he said he looked down and he saw the print of the nails. And he heard the voice 
of Jesus say, Father, this is Daniel Curry. He has confessed me before men on earth, and I am now confessing him before my Father which is in heaven. Friends, I don't know how things will all work out in the end, but if we make it through, I know it will only be because of Jesus. It will only be because of his grace, because of his love. Yes, we have to do our part. We are called to effort, and grace is not opposed to effort. We must do our part, and that's not legalism. But friends, we fall in love with Jesus, and we obey him. We walk in the truth because we love him. We obey his commandments. And friends, if we contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints, yes, it involves high stakes. It's too high a price to pay to fall short. And we need a good strategy. We need to follow our strategy. But friends, if we do contend for the faith, we can be certain, friends, that it will lead to a sure and certain reward. Praise his name. No wonder Jude closes with this wonderful benediction. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. Now unto him. Now unto him that is able to give us life, abundant life. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Now unto him that is able to make us more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now unto him who is able to supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now unto him who is able to help us with all of our infirmities. Now unto him who is able to forgive us our sins and cleanse us, keep us cleansed from all unrighteousness. Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now unto him that is able to keep you from stumbling, from falling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Now unto him be all the glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Praise his name. Amen. Let's stand together.